good evening. It's good to see everybody back tonight and some here with us tonight that weren't with us this morning. On the Lord's Day, it's always the perfect way to end a day, studying together from God's Word and encouraging one another and hopefully uh, admonishing one another to continue strong in the faith. Now, this morning, what we began uh, talking about was God's challenges to mankind. the point being that very often as we define ourselves as Christians and we define what it means to be a Christian, we, we do so in passive or in negative ways. We talk about what we don't do, what we can't do, what's not allowed. And we spend so much time trying not to be bad that we forget to actively do good. And so what we tried to do this morning is, is we ran through the Old Testament pretty quickly and looked at a few examples in the New Testament as well to show that God doesn't really work in that way, that when He gives people something to do, it's, it's very often a big thing that they're being called to do. So just to recap, we looked at Adam and Eve, and we saw that God did not just say to them, sit here in the garden, tend it and keep it, and stay away from the tree of knowledge and good and evil. But in fact, He said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, And over every living thing that moves on the earth, he gave them a big project to go and fill up this world that he had created for them. We looked at Noah and we saw the hundred year project that God gave to Noah as he gave him the plan to build an ark by which he was going to save Noah and his family and two of every living thing. We looked at Abraham and we saw that God had called him out of comfort in his old age. Abraham is 75 years old. He's had a full lifetime. He's got family. He's got uh, relationships. He's got connections. He's got comfort and security where he lives. And God says, get out of there and go out in the desert to the land that I'm going to give to you. To Moses, when Moses is 80 years old, God calls him to be the leader of the children of Israel, bringing them out of bondage in Egypt and taking them all the way to the very gates of the land of Canaan. The 12 spies in the middle of the Exodus story were called to spend 40 days behind enemy lines in danger of their life, uh, checking out the land. A big responsibility, a dangerous job that God gave them. He chose Joshua. And over and over, as we read in that this morning, he tells Joshua, be courageous and don't be afraid. In fact, be strong and be very courageous as you go into combat, conquering this land and taking the land of Canaan that I'm giving you. We notice that over and over, not just with the apostles, but several times, Jesus calls people to come and follow him. And usually, as we saw this morning, what that means is leave behind whatever you're doing. Leave behind your own life. Leave behind your own work. Leave behind even your own family, if necessary, and come and follow me. We saw Saul of Tarsus, that as Ananias is being sent to him in Damascus, God says to Ananias in verse 15 of Acts 9, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine, to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. And as we said this morning, all of those examples that we looked at this morning were examples of individuals that God specifically in some way spoke in their ear and said, this is what I want you to do. We saw in particular in the case of Moses that God doesn't really give him a choice. Moses seems reluctant. He makes several excuses. Finally says, excuse me, finally says, Lord, Please just send somebody else. And the Lord says, no, I've chosen you, and you are going. And as we look at those examples, if we just stop there, maybe we can say, well, that's just a bygone time, and God doesn't work that way anymore. He doesn't pick individuals out anymore. He doesn't give us personal calls anymore to do certain things. But Jesus did say 
He prophesied in John chapter 14, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. That's not limited to the apostles. He says, whoever believes in me is going to do greater things than I did in those three years that I was actively at work here on the earth. I'm not sure we really believe that. We certainly don't live as if we really believe that we have greater things to do in this world than what Jesus himself does or did. In fact, it seems like we believe that what we're responsible to do is to keep the doors open and just wait around until the Lord comes again. I want to suggest that's not the case. And what I want to do tonight is move beyond looking at some of those specific calls and look at some more generic or general challenges that God makes. I want to see how some individuals react in the Bible that God did not specifically speak to, but they seem to believe that God has called them to do something, or at least that they have a responsibility before God to do something, and see maybe how that might apply to us this evening. So if you want to begin by turning to 1 Samuel chapter 14, I just want to introduce a mindset that the people of God have, even when there's not a divine revelation being given to them. In 1 Samuel chapter 14, we're reading about Jonathan, the son of King Saul, and we see an example of the faith and the confidence that he has before God. He and his armor bearer, in verse 1, uh, have just gone to check out what the Philistines are doing. One day, Jonathan, the son of Saul, said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the Philistine garrison on the other side. But he did not tell his father. If you skip down to verse 4, it says, Within the passes by which Jonathan sought to go over to the Philistine garrison, there was a rocky crag on one side and a rocky crag on the other side. The name of the one was Bozes and the name of the other, Senna. The one crag rose on the north in front of Mishmash and the other on the south in front of Geba. Jonathan said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. And so there's where you get uh, the certainty that he doesn't have a specific revelation. He wasn't commanded by God to go do this, but he's, he's expressing a confidence in God. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. And his armor bearer said to him, verse 7, Do all that is in your heart. Do as you wish. Behold, I am with you, heart and soul. Then Jonathan said, Behold, we will cross over to the men, and we will show ourselves to them. If they say to us, Wait until we come to you, then we will stand still in our place, and then we will not go up to them. But if they say, Come up to us, then we will go up, for the Lord has given them into our hand, and this shall be the sign to us. So both of them showed themselves to the garrison of the Philistines. And the Philistines said, Look, Hebrews are coming out of the holes where they have hidden themselves. And the men of the garrison hailed Jonathan and his armor bearer, and said, Come up to us, and we will show you a thing. And Jonathan said to his armor bearer, Come up after me, for the Lord has given them into the hand of Israel. Then Jonathan climbed up in his, on his hands and feet, and his armor bearer after him, and they fell before Jonathan, and his armor bearer killed them after him. And after that first strike, which Jonathan and his armor bearer made, and that first strike, which Jonathan and his armor bearer made, killed about twenty men within, as it were, half a furrow's length in an acre of land, and there was a panic in the camp in the field. And among all the people, the garrison and even the raiders trembled, the earth quaked, and it became a very great panic. And so, of course, at this stage in history, the Israelites and the Philistines are enemies. They're constantly at war with one another. There's, there's conflict going on right now. And it looks like Jonathan is just going looking out for something to do. 
looking for a way to glorify God. It may be that God will work through us if we'll just go out and do something. And as he sees this opportunity, he puts his confidence in God and he goes out and he acts and God brings a victory to him. Two men route 20 and they create a panic among the camp of the Philistines and it becomes a very great panic. It says in verse 15, and so we begin to see that not everybody is specifically called and chosen and yet we see individuals moving and taking advantage and looking for opportunities to do something to bring glory to God. If you go to Esther chapter 4, I think we're very familiar with the story of Esther. Esther is an interesting and a unique book in the Bible. Because God is not specifically mentioned anywhere within the book, and yet as you study, he's obviously all over the book. Uh, but there is no revelation here. People are feeling their way just like we do, having to make decisions based on faith and based on prayer and just doing what seems to be right to them. And as the plot becomes clear to the uncle of Esther, Mordecai, and he understands that the Israelites have been slated for destruction, he speaks to his niece. And in verse 13, it says, Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. And again, we see the uncertainty. Uh, just like Josh, uh, Jonathan in, in 1 Samuel chapter 14. It may be that the Lord will work. Here it's who knows but maybe you've got something to do here, Esther. And as we go through the rest of the book, we see that Esther takes that to heart. She acts as if she has been commissioned by God to act. And God uses her to save the people of Israel in the book of Esther. In Ezra chapter 7, it's somewhat contemporary, not exactly, with, uh, with Esther, maybe just a little bit after the time of Ezra, Esther, maybe just a little bit before but it's at the time when Israel has finished the period of captivity and that God has put them in because of their sins. It's time for them to go home. And Ezra and Nehemiah are both involved at different stages of the return to Jerusalem from captivity. And I want to look again at the, at the attitude that they have. Ezra is the one that goes back and begins and works on the rebuilding of the temple. And we don't really have time or want to take the time this evening to go into that whole story and go into the details of it. But as Ezra looks at the work that is being done, and he looks at the attitude of the king in allowing the children of Israel to come back, he says in verse 27 of Ezra 7, Blessed be the Lord, the God of our fathers, who put such a thing as this into the heart of the king to beautify the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. And who extended to me his steadfast love before the king and his counselors and before all the king's mighty officers. I took courage for the hand of the Lord my God was on me and I gathered leading men from Israel to go up with me. Look at his confidence in God. Look at him ascribing these things to God. Although there doesn't seem to be a specific revelation that this is what's going on. It is not like in Genesis when we see God talking to Abraham and we see God talking to Moses in Exodus and saying, this is the thing that you are going to do. This is people looking at events and trusting in God and remembering the things that God has said and seeing that God is at work 
as it comes time for the children of Israel to go back, and Ezra becomes involved in it, he praises God for moving the heart of the king, and he says that the hand of my, the Lord my God was upon me, and I gathered leading men from Israel to go up with me. But as he goes and he talks about his confidence in God, um, there is danger in the place where he is going. And you remember with Joshua, God says, don't worry about the danger because I'll be with you. Be strong and courageous. I'll fight for you. Uh, Ezra doesn't have that kind of promise. He's just got faith. And so it says in verse 21 of chapter 8, I proclaimed a fast there at the river Ahava, that we might humble ourselves before our God to seek from him a safe journey for ourselves, our children, and all our goods. For I was ashamed to ask the king for a band of soldiers and horsemen to protect us against the enemy on our way, since we had told the king, the hand of our God is for good on all who seek him, and the power of his wrath is against all who forsake him. So we fasted and implored our God for this, and he listened to our entreaty. Do you see the difference again? That Ezra has not been told by God, go and I'll be with you. But Ezra has been told indirectly by God that the hand of God is for good on all who seek him and the power of his wrath is against all that forsake him. That's written in the law just as a general promise that God makes. And now Ezra is calling on God to fulfill that promise. So much so that he's afraid to even ask for armed soldiers to protect him. And instead he's praying for God's safety and then moving in trust that God will do that. And of course, as we go on in the book of Ezra, Ezra does that. But do you see how Ezra is taking this upon himself to do something for the glory of God without specifically personally being sent by God to do this? We see the same thing, I think, with Nehemiah. Uh, he comes along just a little bit later in the... He comes along actually early in the story, but later in, in the Bible. Uh, he is involved in rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem and rebuilding the city. And Ezra, uh, we read about him late in the book of Nehemiah. But in Nehemiah chapter 2, as Nehemiah recounts uh, the beginnings of his travels back to Jerusalem, he has gotten to Jerusalem and he's going up to inspect the walls of Jerusalem. In verse 11, he says, I went to Jerusalem and was there three days. Then I rose in the night, I and a few men with me, and I told no one what my God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. There was no animal with me but the one on which I rode. I went out by night by the valley gate to the dragon spring and to the dung gate, and I expected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down and its gates that had been destroyed by fire. Then I went on to the fountain gate and to the king's pool, but there was no room for the animal that was under me to pass. Then I went up in the night by the valley and inspected the wall, and I turned back and entered by the valley gate and so returned. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing. And I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who were to do, to do the work. Then I said to them, You see the trouble we are in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good, and also of the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, Let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the work. Again, Nehemiah is giving the Lord full credit for everything that's going on. But as we read through the book of Nehemiah, I don't see any evidence that the Lord appeared to Nehemiah and said, Nehemiah, go rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. Instead, what it looks like is Nehemiah in chapter 1 hears about the ruins of Jerusalem. He hears about 
the trouble and shame of that city. He hears how the gates are destroyed by fire and the wall is broken down. In chapter 1 and verse 3, he is very troubled by that. Verse 4 of chapter 1 says, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. He starts praying for an opportunity to go and be involved in that, and the king gives him the opportunity. And it sounds very much to me like the same way that we work. And then he goes and he looks around Jerusalem himself. He's finally gotten there, and he is touring the city. And he is seeing the ruins and he is seeing the problem. And then look at how he speaks to the people again. Verse 17, you see the trouble we're in. How Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. What is happening is Nehemiah sees a need. And he sees something that belongs to the Lord that needs to be taken care of. And he takes it upon himself to take care of it. And God blesses him in that. It's not a specific personal challenge. But it's a need that exists. And Nehemiah sees himself as the guy to fulfill it. And God blesses him in doing that. We might see some examples of that as well in the New Testament. In Acts chapter 6. I know you're having to make some fast mental jumps between eras and circumstances and things that are going on in the Bible. But I I think we're familiar with all of these stories that I'm looking at this evening. In Acts chapter 6, what is going on is the church has begun, the church has grown, there are now thousands of members in the church in Jerusalem, and among those thousands of members there are needy people within the congregation, particularly needy widows within the congregation. And in verse 1 of Acts 6, it says, Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip and Procurus and Nicanor and Timon and Parmenaeus and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they sent before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. And so once again, here's a need that arises, and they see that it needs to be fulfilled. Just for a comparison, when you go back to Acts chapter 1 and Acts chapter 2, there's another need that they see, because Judas has died, and they understand that there needs to be 12 among the apostles, and they recognize that that God needs to select who this is going to be. And so they narrow their choices down to two in Acts chapter 1, and then in verse 24 it says, they prayed and said, you Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias. And he was numbered with the 11 apostles. And so in the selection of an apostle, you see how they ask God to make the decision. They put two before the Lord, and they say, Lord, you decide which one. In Acts chapter 6, it's completely the opposite. They select the seven. And then verse 6 says, These they sent before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them, and the word of the Lord continues to increase. And my only point is that this is not 
a specific direct commission from God to an individual, but it's a general need that someone needs to meet. And these seven are selected by the church to meet it. And God glorifies that decision. They see a need. They take action. And God blesses them. They see it as a challenge from God that needs to be met. In Acts chapter 16. In Acts chapter 16, what we're going to look at is a mixture of a miracle and people having to think about what's going on. I don't know how you envision how the apostles worked as they began to fulfill the Great Commission, going into all the world and preaching the gospel to all creation. But here in Acts chapter 16, we get a a sense in which we see that it is not always God directly saying, Paul, once you're done here, go there. But instead, they're having to look at circumstances and situations and events and make some decisions about what they're supposed to do. In Acts chapter 16, beginning in verse 6, it says, They went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come up to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there urging him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. And maybe you have to look a little bit closely as you read about these different events. But first it says in verse 6 that they had been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. What do you suppose that looks like? It's not necessarily the Holy Spirit saying, Thou shalt not go to Asia. It may very well be that they tried to go there and they were blocked in various ways. And so then were unable. And because they recognize the Holy Spirit is involved in everything that they do, the conclusion is the Holy Spirit forbade us from going. We see that a little bit more specifically in verse 7. When they had come up to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. If the Lord had said... Directly and specifically, don't go up there. Would they have attempted it? And so the fact that they attempted to go there first suggested that the Spirit of Jesus not allowing them is more he's not allowing them by the circumstances to go there. They try, but they're unable. And so they ascribe to God. He doesn't want us to go there. And then they have this vision, or Paul has this vision. Obviously, the vision is from the Holy Spirit as we read it in Acts. Obviously, it's, it's a miraculous sort of thing But once again, it is not a direct command, Paul, go over to Macedonia and preach. But instead, as they look at at the vision and as they begin to act, it says in verse 10, immediately we sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Now, it's a little bit more directed than what we have. But don't we have to do the same thing to a certain extent? that we see opportunities and they arise before us. And some things we try to do, there's absolutely no success in it. So what do we conclude? Except that God doesn't want us to do that. And then other things we attempt and the door is open wide and there's a great deal of success. What do we conclude? Maybe this is something that God wants us to do. They seem to be working in that way, don't they? It's not a direct command that they're given here. It's the circumstances and them trying to work to please God that, that causes them to draw these conclusions. 
in Colossians chapter 4. Starting in verse 2, Paul says, Continue steadfastly in prayer to the Colossians, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. And when you look at the prayer that he asked them to pray, excuse me, Pray for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ. That's not a very specific prayer. Just that God will open a door. Now, if, if Jack is praying for me that I might have an opportunity to preach the gospel, how am I going to know specifically whether Jack's prayer has been answered other than by circumstances? And that seems to be what Paul is asking for here. He's asking for the door to be open, that he be able to see where and how he can be effective in preaching the gospel, and that he may, may be able to make the gospel clear as he preaches it. And, and then finally on this point, let's look at Revelation chapter 3. Starting in verse 7. When the Lord speaks to the church in Philadelphia, he says, To the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, The words of the Holy One, the True One, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you because you have kept my word about patient endurance. I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. So he gives them some fairly specific instructions, but when he says in verse 8, Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. Can you tell me what that open door is? Is there any clues there within the text that tells us specifically what he's talking about? Or is it a little bit more generic? I'm giving you an opportunity. And however hard it may look, and however much persecution may come upon you, I am telling you that you have an opportunity here that no one can take away from you. And so then what becomes their job? except to look for that open door and go through it and take advantage of the opportunity. And my only point in looking at all of those things, all of those general challenges, is to show that God works in both ways, even in the Bible. Sometimes he specifically chooses an individual and says, you are called to this task, like Saul of Tarsus, like Moses, like Abraham, like Joshua. Sometimes God calls us to a task by putting us right there when the need arises, and as we see what God's will is, and as we see that we are here, and as we begin to act, God makes us the person for doing that job. It's more of a general commission. And I'm suggesting that the second category is more what applies to us today. I was talking with the kids over lunch about these things, and one of the things that we tend to do, I think, when we read 
the magnificent works of the saints in the Bible. And the magnificent work of God in the Bible is we read those great stories and we see all those things that were done and how God was glorified and how he used people. And we look at those things and we think, I wish I lived in days like that. And the point is, you do live in days like that. There are still great things to be done in the kingdom of God. There's still challenges arising every day, big ones and small ones, some that are local, some that are far off, some that we are in a position to meet. And we defeat ourselves when we think that those days are past and there's nothing else for me to do except go to church. That's not what God's intention for us is. And hopefully we can see that point as we look at how the saints worked even in Bible times. And so as we consider that, if you accept that premise then we need to understand some of the principles that are involved. An attitude, Carrie likes to talk about attitude a lot that we need to have, a mindset that we need to have as Christians as to what this faith is really all about. And I've already said a couple times, but I'll say again, this faith is not about just not being bad. That's certainly part of it. We're supposed to turn away from sin and pursue righteousness. But pursuing is something, right? There is something that we need to be doing. In Galatians chapter 6, this is not a command that is written to churches per se. This is a command or an instruction that is written to every Christian. In verse 7, beginning, Paul says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. What are our marching orders? What is our instruction there from the Apostle Paul? Except to look for opportunities to do good. And every time we have an opportunity, let us do good to everyone in the whole world. And especially to those who are of the household of faith. And furthermore, in verse 9, let us not grow tired. Let us not grow weary of doing that good. We are here not just to do no harm to other people, but we are here to actively do them good. He gets a little bit more strident on that point when you look in the book of Titus. And I know that we've looked at this before and we've made this observation before, but it's worth making again. If you begin in... Titus chapter 2, verse 11. Let's note the recurring phrase within this section. Titus 2, verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy towards all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others, and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, 
so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. Skip down to verse 14. And let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. Over and over in that reading, what does he say? Four times in that reading, he says we're to be zealous for good works. We're to be ready for good works. We're to be devoted to good works. That doesn't sound like people that just every once in a while do something good. But rather, it sounds like that's what we're all about, is doing good works. He says be zealous for these things. He says these things are excellent and profitable for people. Why are there troubles in churches? Why is there dissension and division in churches? Why do Christians argue and fight and, vic and bicker? Why do so many people give up and quit going to church because it seems like a waste of time to them? Because it is a waste of time. Because we're not doing anything. Because we're not actively engaged in some kind of project when God specifically says, be zealous, be devoted, be ready for every good work, be looking for something to do. There, there's no way around it. He says it's excellent and profitable. This is what will help the church. This is what will glorify God, is if we're busy doing good in the world. He says in, the, in that last verse, verse 14, let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not to be unfruitful. Do you ever feel unfruitful? Do you ever wonder, why am I doing this again? Why am I, what is the result of me being a Christian? What have I accomplished by being a Christian? What is the fruit that I am bearing? Am I just wasting my time being here? He says, get busy about good works, and then you won't be unfruitful. That's what our job is. That's what our mission is. And so that's one of the key principles, is that as Christians, we're devoted to good works with this attitude. In Ecclesiastes chapter 9 and verse 10, Solomon says, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. Have you ever seen a guy that was doing something all out with everything that he had? And then we've, we've even got a phrase for the opposite attitude, right? Have you ever watched a ball game and, and someone says, well, he's obviously just mailing in the game today. You know, he's there, he's present, but he's just mailing it in. He's not really giving everything he's got in what he's doing. Solomon says, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. That's just a general principle for life in Ecclesiastes. But then specifically when it comes to God's things in Colossians chapter 3, verse 23, he says, Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done. And there is no partiality. Work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. And Carrie spent some time in Bible class this morning talking about that idea of doing things heartily. So we won't spend too much time on that. But also that phrase, doing it as for the Lord and not for men. Have you ever noticed that we don't seem to have any problems striving for excellence in every other area of our life? 
We do absolutely the very best we can at work. Why? So we can get a good reputation, so we can get a promotion, so we can make more money, so we can have some security. We know what it means to do our best and be at our best. Those of us who are involved in athletics and play sports. I had a coach in Little League that says, we're just here to have fun. And losing is no fun. Right? Especially boys, and I think a lot of young ladies too, understand a spirit of competition that I want to pit myself against someone else and show myself to be superior. And I will work and I will sacrifice and I will train and I will change my diet in order that I can be the best that I can be at whatever this physical activity is that I have. Or we have some, some hobby that we have. Carrie likes to shoot. I like to play guitar. And we might spend hours and hours at the range and in the practice room working over that and honing that and trying to get just as good as we can at it. And we want to be excellent at the things that we do. And then we come to church and it's a half-hearted, last-minute effort. And when he says, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, I think we've got an attitude sometimes that says this is good enough for the Lord. And it's not nearly the effort that we put into everything else. And he's telling us to have the opposite mindset. That when I'm serving God, I am doing that. If I'm doing something for the Lord, then it's more important than anything else I've ever done. It's a bigger thing than anything else I've ever done. And I'm going to work harder at this than I work at anything else that I do because I'm doing it for the Lord and not for me. He says, whatever you do, do it with that kind of mindset. Now, so doesn't that apply then to being devoted to good works when I'm going to go out and look for something good to do in the kingdom of God? I'm going to do that the best of my ability. I'm going to make it as excellent as I can make it. So, as Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, people will see those good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. That's the attitude and the mindset that we need to have as we look for opportunities to take up the challenges that God puts in front of us. And then someone says, well, that's easy for you to say. You've got a lot of abilities. <laughs> At least in the kingdom of God. I've, I've had the privilege, I guess of going a lot of places and doing a lot of things. And someone says, well, I'm not like you. I'm not a preacher. I'm not a teacher. I don't have an easy way with words. It's not easy for me to talk to people. I've got a secret. It's not easy for me to talk to people either. But we make our excuses. We just say, I don't have a whole lot of abilities. There's not a whole lot I can do. You really can't expect much out of me. And so I want to think about something else that God says. He talks about the gifts that people are given. The abilities that we have. There are other verses that talk about gifts in the Bible. And they are more about the miraculous gifts of the Holy Spirit that people received in the first century. These verses are not about that. These verses are about more generic talents and abilities that people have. Look, for example, in Romans chapter 12. In Romans chapter 12, beginning in verse 3, it says, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually, Members of one another, having gifts that differ, <coughs> excuse me, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, 
Let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Look also in 1 Peter chapter 4. In 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 10 and 11. Peter says, As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks, as one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves, as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong dominion dominion forever and ever. Amen. Notice in verse 10 that Peter says, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another. In Romans chapter 12 and verse 6, verse, he says, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. And then in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul's talking about something completely different here. Uh, he's talking about the ability to remain unmarried and continue to serve God without sin. But in verse 7 of 1 Corinthians 7, he says, I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. Notice that Peter says each one has a gift. Paul says having gifts. Here in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 7, he says, each has his own gift from God. Who in the church doesn't have a gift from God? As we look at those verses, he says, each one has a gift. Each one has something that they can do. And when we look at those specific things, I found those mostly in Romans chapter 12, but also in 1 Peter chapter 4, those gifts are specifically defined as serving and as teaching and as speaking and exhortation and contribution and leading, and doing acts of mercy. We're running out of time tonight, but if you think about it, think of any project that you want to think of in the church. Think of anything that you want to think of that might be categorized as a good work that you individually could go out and do in your life, and every one of them falls under one of these categories. It's a very short list, but it's a very broad list of things. Anything that you could do is one of these things. And God declares that you and I each have some kind of gift. There is something that you are good at. There is something that you can do. There is some way that you can glorify God, which means there is some challenge for you to undertake in the kingdom of God and devote yourself to and do it heartily as to the Lord so that you can be devoted to good works. There's no one left. There are no talentless people in the church. But sometimes we just don't know what the talent is. Or sometimes our vision is so narrow. When we talk about working in the church, what immediately springs to your mind? Doing what I do? Serving the Lord's Supper? Leading singing? Leading public prayers? Teaching Bible classes? Those are all good, noble, important things. But if that's all we can think of to do in the kingdom of God, we are way too small-minded. God has much more for us to do. 
and the bulk of it is to be done outside the walls of this church building. And so the last question I have is, what is your gift? What is it that you are doing? What is it that you can do? What need do you see? What challenge is there? What, what have you talked with someone about? And you've said, someone needs to. <laughs> There's your thing right there. When you see what it is and no one else sees it, maybe you're the guy. Maybe you're the woman. Maybe you're the one that needs to stand up and go do that thing that you see that needs to be done instead of sitting around waiting for someone else to stand up. Paul says each one has a gift, at least one. When we look at the parable of talents, some, some of us might have five. Some of us might have two. But we've all got at least one. And Peter says, having these gifts, use them. <laughs> and use them for service. Use them to do something good. There's still challenges out there. There's still needs that need to be met. Sometimes we get discouraged. Sometimes we get weary and tired as Christians because we've got nothing to do. And if we've got nothing to do, it's our own fault. We need to be thinking. We need to be praying and looking for a way to glorify God in the way that we live. I've already talked with the elders, so I'm not getting after them right now. But the elders, as shepherds of this flock, should be looking at the members of this church and knowing the sheep. They should be suggesting, you know, Martha, you'd be really good at this. Why don't you do that? Charles, you'd be good at something else. Marion, why don't you do this? That's the role of the elders. And if the elders begin doing that, we should listen. And we should pay attention and start looking for a way that we can be of service in the kingdom of God, that we can take up these challenges and we can glorify God in the way that we live. Thanks for thinking about these things with me tonight. Hope it's made some kind of sense. I don't think I'm way out on left field with the things that I'm seeing there in the scriptures. But I hope that you'll take it seriously and that you'll think about in the coming days and weeks and months of what is it that you can do to glorify God in your realm of influence. If you want to turn your songbooks to number 276, we'll sing that as a close.